Morning. Now, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're looking, beginning in verse 22 today, at Simeon's song. Last week we uh, looked at Mary's song, and we learned some things concerning God and what we can count on in reference to God uh, in the days in which we wait. And today I want us to consider our activity in that waiting and drawing from Simeon, drawing from this old man uh, who had uh, waited for this particular day, this day when Jesus was born and when he was presented in the temple. And so Simeon uh, is an example to us of what we do while we wait. There are three things I want us to notice. Uh, one is the righteous devotion of waiting. There is a righteous devotion in our waiting. Um, and secondly, I want us to see the reassuring pleasure of God's faithfulness. The reassuring pleasure of God's faithfulness. Lastly, I want us to uh, consider uh, that Jesus came uh, and in coming, he would raise up many to be oppressed. He would raise up many that they would be oppressed for his namesake. And so I want us to consider this today as we look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And I want to give you a little bit of background of what's going on in this text. Uh, of course, Christ has been born, and he is being presented at the temple. And I believe it was eight days where he was to be presented. And there are two things going on here, two aspects of the law that are being uh, fulfilled, that they are carrying out, that the Old Testament had said, do this when the firstborn male is born, do this. And so that's what's going on. Uh, in the first couple of verses, uh, where it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offers a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, uh, or two young pigeons. Uh, let's, let's take a moment and look at that. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 11, is where we find uh, this first thing. Exodus chapter 13, verse 11. And one thing that he's doing is they're remembering something. They're remembering how God had set them free, how God had re, uh, freed them from Egypt. In verse 11 of uh, uh, Exodus chapter 13, it says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals uh, that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey shall uh, you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you... Uh, will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time, uh, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. By the strong hand of the Lord, he set us free. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is being presented in obedience to this law that God gave, but also he's been given, being given in fulfillment 
of that very law. He has come to set us free. Isn't that great news? He's come to set us free. And so uh, that's what Mary and Joseph were doing there. That's why they came to the temple. They came to present their firstborn son, Jesus. And he is the one who brings great joy. So they came and they made this offering. But also there was another, uh, a second thing that was being done there. Look with me at Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 12. I didn't mark this, so I just had to do the Bible drill thing in my head, okay? Leviticus numbers. So Leviticus chapter 12 Verse 6, it says there, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for burnt offering, and a pigeon or eternal dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Verse 8 says this, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So this is the, uh, the ritual for a woman after she had given birth. And so these two things are going on here in Luke chapter 2, following the birth of Christ, and they come into the temple. Before we get into those three things I mentioned, I want to point out something that's going on in this text as well. In Luke chapter 2, we notice something, and that is the word law five times. We see it in verse 22, uh, where the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. And in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord and then in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And coming on down to verse 27, uh, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. They're doing what the law says for them to do, particularly the ceremonial law. Okay? Uh, and they are doing what they have been commanded to do, uh, doing this law. But I want you to notice something else that takes place. Another word that's used in this text, look with me if you will, where it speaks of Simeon, that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In the next verse, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And then verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child. The law and the Spirit. Luke's saying that law people and spirit people walk in obedience. There's a strong emphasis in Luke that Spirit people are law people, and law people are spirit people. The righteous ones, from Elizabeth and Zechariah to Joseph and Mary to ultimately Jesus, are law keepers and... They are powerfully led by the Spirit of God. So they're law people and they're spirit people. What do we normally do with the law and the Spirit? We pit them against one another, don't we? Here Luke doesn't have them pitted against one another, but they're intertwined with one another. When we think of the law, oftentimes what we think of is we think of uh, maybe the judicial law, okay? Thou shalt not. 
But also there's another thing called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law where all the feasts and the festivals and even some of what's going on in this text. And these laws were things that they did. You had the the Passover and such as that. And we find in Hebrews that once Christ came, all that stuff ceased. The ceremonial law went away. The judicial law still stands, by the way. It does not save us, but it is certainly speaking truth to us about what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad. And these people were keeping the law, and they were led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be Spirit-led sometimes in our minds? It's to be spontaneous. It's not to be constrained by religious rules and dogma. That's often what people think of when they speak of being Spirit-led. You know, don't give me all those rules. The Spirit's leading me, you know. It's amazing some of the things that the Spirit will lead them to do, you know. We won't get into that. I will say this, that oftentimes they're led to do by the Spirit, but the Word of God doesn't support. That's not Spirit-led, by the way. That's what we often think. What we think of when we have a, someone who's law-abiding, however, Someone who's rigid, someone who follows all the rules. Well, you can't do that. Well, why, why not? You know, you make people nervous, right? It's kind of, why can't I do that? I mean, they're straight laced people, you know. And so, what we often do is we often pit the spirit and the law against one another. And Luke's saying, wait a minute, spirit led people. And law-led people, uh, these people are doing the will and the word and the work of God. You don't separate them. We tend to hear law and spirit and import our own thinking. So we shouldn't think of the Law and spirit is some sort of spiritual oxymoron like jumbo shrimp or plastic silverware. I have at home an original copy of my birth certificate. Oxymoronic, right? You ever been concerned about crash landing? Look, you either crash or you land. Don't crash land, right? We can't say, well, you know what, we're... We're sound in our doctrine, and we're walking in this way, and that's what we do, and this is who we are. And then not be evangelistic. You don't separate those things. If you say we're sound in doctrine, yet you don't do caring ministry to people, you might be sound in what you think about the doctrine, but you don't understand what it means if you're not going to love people and share the gospel. We, we need to understand we don't separate these two in this, in this context. You ever cut something in half for two of your kids? 
and the kids say, I want the bigger hat? I want to lean more to the Spirit. I want to lean more to the law. Let's lean more toward Christ because that's what? Where he was. And knowing and understanding the law, he lived out that law in doing the good that the Lord had sent him to do. We have a passion for doctrine and good theology, but we also need a passion to love and care for one another. Those two things have to go together. They have to. So what's going on here at the temple speaks to us. We've got the law taking place, and we've got the Spirit at work. And the will of God is being done in doing so. As we look at Simeon beginning in verse 25, all these things are taking place, and, and there's a guy named Simeon. I take it that Simeon is old. Y'all realize that throughout the narrative from the beginning of Luke, every, everybody, every character in the narrative has been older except for Joseph and Mary. It's almost like there's this newness that begins with them. Simeon is well advanced in years, apparently. He had been waiting. That's the implication that is given in the writing of Luke. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We see that he is waiting. I want us to think about the righteous devotion of waiting. The description of Simeon includes these two adjectives, righteous and devout. The verb waiting is defining the activity of Simeon's righteousness and devotion toward God. So as he waits, he waits in righteousness. He waits with a heart and a mind that is devoted to the living God. He's waiting. We're not told how long he waits. The implication is is that he's older. But waiting is hard. Especially if you're older. Uh, When you sit for too long when you're older as you're waiting for the doctor's office at the doctor's office or you're waiting for your meal to come you go to get up after having sat there for 15 20 minutes depending on which restaurant you go to and you've been sitting in a certain way and you didn't notice until you pulled your leg down having been crossed and then you go to get up, and something, there's a hitch in you get, get along, you know? I mean, you, you, try to, you try to get up, and you kind of grunt a little bit. By the way, y'all need to know, I've got a grandson. He's already doing that. Because he hears his grandparents, and every time he bends over, he goes, Ugh! You know, you, 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 you feel, you know, this after you've been waiting for this pain. I imagine that as Simeon was older, he had endured a number of physical ailments in his waiting. You think, well, you know, the Lord, he he promised him that he would see Israel's consolation. That didn't mean that his waiting would be easy, would it? We can assume some things if he was older that his waiting at times was painful. His waiting at times involved impatience. Although I'm waiting, I'm not really patient about it. 
But we see that his righteousness was done, or his waiting was done, in righteousness and in devotion to the living God. You say, but you said he was impatient. I'm assuming that he was, because he's human. I'm looking at you. You're impatient, aren't you? Some of you are kind of like, no, not really. Eh, I'm put you in a situation where you'd be impatient. Most all of us are impatient about something. I'm just going off of human nature. The impatience of waiting. You ever get behind a stoplight and you're sitting there and you're waiting? And it's like the longest light. Longest light in Palestine is at the corner of, is at the intersection of Crockett Road and the Loop. It absolutely is. I haven't timed it yet. I don't care to time it. It would just make me mad. But you sit there and you wait. And you got somewhere to be. And the light finally turns green. And the brake lights are still staring at you. And you look through the back window and you see the phone. They're scrolling. I'm still waiting, but now I'm doing it with great impatience. I have chosen to honk the horn rather than mash the accelerator. Most of the time. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And there he is. He was waiting in righteous devotion. What was he waiting for? He's waiting for this child. Right? He's waiting for this child, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah. To be born. I mean, he even says that. It says the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit. He's waiting for the consolation of the Holy uh, of Israel and the Holy Spirit. This phrase, consolation of Israel, uh, this was a phrase describing the coming of Messiah as political savior, who would reestablish the prominence of Israel in a political way. That's not what he was looking for. Look at verse 30. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's waiting for God's salvation. That's what he's waiting for. He never lost track of that in all of his waiting. He never lost track of that in any impatience that may have risen. Never lost track. I'm waiting for the salvation of God. Aren't we doing that? We're waiting for the salvation of God. If you've been saved by grace through faith, I'm going to hope that most of us have. We are still waiting for the completion of that salvation. It's not complete yet. I mean, I'm completely saved in the sense that I'm not going back. But salvation isn't finished. We had justification, okay? God declaring us righteous, not because of our own works, but because of the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to us, justification. Sanctification, he is sanctifying us. He is making us into his, more, look more like his son, Jesus. And then what's next? glorification when he comes and we're all changed all of that is salvation salvation's not done yet praise god isn't that great i mean salvation's not finished it's still happening that salvation is glorification when he comes we get new bodies we're all going to be slim and trim you know 
Oh, we're all going to be, you know, nice in terms of just we're going to look good. Everybody's going to be bald. Everybody's going to, you laugh. Uh, perfect bodies. That's why I said that. It's going to be a glorious day. But we're still waiting for it. In imperfect bodies, with imperfect minds and imperfect thoughts. Imperfect in our obedience. But we persist in waiting. My confidence in his coming and my confidence in him taking me is not in my work. Either before I was saved or since I've been saved. My confidence is in Jesus and in him alone. And if your confidence is in anything else, put a check mark and say, let me go back and revisit the gospel. It's not on your works. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, well, I should be here because I did this. You're not going to do it. The wrong answer. It's only going to be because of what he did. Salvation through glorification is still coming. It's going to be a beautiful day at the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. When he comes in glory for all of his saints, and judgment of the world. He's going to come. He's going to judge the world. He's going to redeem his saints. Those who are his. The writers of the New Testament ask some questions. And give some remarks. Knowing that Jesus is coming. What should our life be like? In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes these words. Verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Listen, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Y'all hear that? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What kind of people ought you to be? Righteous and devoted. That word devoted, pious, is the term. Pious or piety. It's being devoted to another. There's this devotion toward God. All of our lives are pushing toward Him and looking toward Him. Everything about our life is filtered through knowing the living God through Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It really is. And that's uh, what he's talking about here. He's, we're waiting on this. We're waiting for this to come. And as we wait, we want to be righteous and we want to be devoted to God. We want to live in and toward righteousness. None of us do that perfectly. But what happens when we fail at it? What happens when we fail at walking in righteousness? We repent, don't we? We repent and we turn to Him. We live in faith toward Him. Waiting in righteous devotion doesn't mean that we wait and we do everything perfect all the time. It means that we persist in believing. Believing. 
We persist in trusting God that what he said he will do, he has done. Peter says right after that, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells based on his promise. Our waiting is according to the promise of God. So we wait according to his promise. And we pursue righteousness and we pursue devotion and we live in righteousness and devotion. That's how Simeon lived. That's the example that we see in this text in Luke. In 1 John chapter 2, we see a similar uh, thought going on there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John writes, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The practice of our life is righteousness and devotion. That's the practice of our life. Verse 2 says this in chapter 3 of 1 John. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. None of us are as pure as Jesus. But we're continually working toward that goal. That's righteous devotion. We go on in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now you can read this and interpret it wrongly, and everybody will walk away from your Bible study knowing or believing that they're lost. Because this is not saying that we're going to live perfectly. It is saying that there's a practice in a believer's life. And the practice of a believer's life is that of righteous devotion toward God. And when we are born again, when we belong to Jesus, that is our pursuit. To be like Jesus. In this life, we're not going to attain it. But in an instant, he's going to make us like him when he comes. I look forward to that. So what it says about Simeon and him waiting in righteousness and waiting in devotion, we can't make that that he was waiting in perfection. We can make it that he was waiting in perseverance. He was persevering. He wasn't giving up. Sometimes when we sin, and we may sin bad, you ever feel like, hey, you know, I'm just going to throw this away, or, you know, I, I must not be saved. You'll sometimes have some teachers that'll make sure you think that too. I'm thankful that our salvation is not through our perfect walk, but through the perfect walk of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that our salvation is not based on my sooner or later coming to a place where I'm walking perfectly, but that Jesus is pleased. Revelation, remember? Letter to the churches. He's pleased with he who endures, he who perseveres to the end, he who keeps believing, he who keeps repenting. What do we do as believers when we fail? We repent and we believe. The endurance 
that we see in Simeon. He was waiting. And we're waiting. We're waiting for Christ to return. We see the righteous devotion of waiting, and then we see the reassuring pleasure of God's faithfulness. It goes on and it tells us, and it's been revealed to him, uh, chapter 2, back in Luke, chapter 2, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. In other words, the Lord was leading him to the temple. I don't know that he sat at the temple all the time, but here on this day, the Lord God led him by the Spirit to the temple. You need to go to the temple today, Simeon. Isn't that great? Go to the temple. I got something for you there. And so, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, he blessed God. He spoke well of God. That's what's going on here, by the way. He spoke well of God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And look at this. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Rejoicing is the theme of God's promise fulfilled. It doesn't tell us that Simeon was leaping and jumping up and down. But I can just see... Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. I, I, I can only imagine that Simeon had tears running down his face at this point. The text doesn't tell me that, but I can't imagine waiting on something like that. And there not being tears involved when you have the salvation of God in your hand. I mean, here he is, he's, he's, saying, he's taking great pleasure in the faithfulness of God. Hasn't God been faithful to you? Even in sorrow, even in pain, even in loss, isn't he still there? Isn't he still loving you? Isn't he still holding out the promise that he promised you? The promise of eternal life, the promise of salvation, the promise of hope. He never leaves you, never forsakes you. Simeon is recognizing this as he's holding this precious child. And what's he saying? You're letting your servant depart in peace. That almost sounds like longing to me. Actually, it does. It does sound like that. You're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, you said... I would see the Christ, and here he is. This guy's looking forward to his departure. He's looking forward to it. I've seen your salvation. And all his hope in that little baby right there, in his living God, he's holding his salvation. He'll never see him on the cross. But I believe he'll see him in the clouds. There's rejoicing in the fulfillment of God's promise. He never leaves you. He's always faithful. He'll always give you a word when you need it from His Word. We see with Simeon, there's reassuring pleasure in the faithfulness of God. God's promise fulfilled. A lot of hard things we faced in this life. Sometimes we wonder, God, why do you let this happen? But there's something beautiful about God. He's sovereign over everything. We can trust him completely. 
even when our whole world comes apart. Even when everything falls to pieces, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of everything, there's the living God. He's never let go of you. He won't. If you've trusted in him and repented, he's still your God. And he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. And he will embrace you. Several years ago, I wasn't fully convinced of that in a particular time. And I was reading about how God does that. I'll never leave you. And I was meditating on that thought. And I felt abandoned. And as I read that, I just kept reading it over and over again. Believing God's promise. And as I was believing God's promise, I was going, yeah, but, yeah, but, you ever do that? Yeah, but look, yeah, but this, yeah, but that. Y'all ever do that? Am I the only one that does that? Yeah, but look at this circumstances. Look at that circumstance. And the picture was this, me sitting there reading that and believing that and then saying, yeah, but. The illustration that came to my mind was God embracing me and holding on to me and convincing me with his word. I'm not, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'm sitting in a cabin in East Texas by myself. And I'm saying this over and over again. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And it's like he's holding on to me. And every time I say, yeah, but, it's me trying to wiggle out. Y'all ever try? Y'all ever kid ever do that? I got a sweet little granddaughter. I got five of them, actually. But I got one of them. And this morning, she's probably going to run up to me. And she's going to say, Papa. And she's going to run. And she's going to put her arms out. And I'm going to pick her up. And as soon as I pick her up, she's wiggling and trying to get down. Okay? She wants out. She loves me and she wants me to know, but she's getting out. Time to get me down. I got somewhere to go. And that's what we do. And I was trying to get loose from him. Yeah, but Lord, yeah, but Lord, no. No, I'm not going to leave you. And you can wiggle all you want to. Because I intend to wear you out from resisting me. And he did. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I hear the relief in Simeon. This is relief. battle is over. He's rejoicing in that soon he will be dead. There's no more struggle, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hurting when I get up. In your salvation. In the midst of his rejoicing, his eyes go to the nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory and for glory to your people, Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of of all peoples. Jews and everybody else. That's what that means. Nations. Gentiles. He starts looking out there and he starts seeing this Savior is going to save many. This child is the hope of the nations, all of the nations. 
The impoverished, the crippled will reap and they will leap because of this child. That's what he sees. That's what he knows. That's what he feels. There's joy. There's reassurance. There's hope in that God never forsakes his promise to his people. But he goes on and he says some words to Mary. And he speaks to her about the raising of many to be oppressed. Verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. There's an implication there. That there's a sword passing through this one also, Christ. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's words seem to come from Isaiah 8. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You know what? We see this truth all the time, don't we? When people hear the gospel and push it away, reject it. I'm not believing that. That's just some ancient old wives' tale. You might as well tell me a fairy tale and ask me to believe that. Because this is no more than a fairy tale. I experienced that in Wales, going over there and sharing the gospel, standing out on a street corner in, in, in Cardiff, Wales, uh, with gospel tracts, hoping somebody would take it. And somebody did one day, and they took that thing, and they looked at it, and they started talking to me in their funny accent. And then I started talking, and I realized I was the one that had the funny accent, okay? And I'm going to tell you, if you're from Texas, and you go to a foreign country, and they can understand you, and you start talking, you will draw a crowd, okay? And so I started talking, and everybody gathered around, and man, I shared the gospel, poured it out. I'm going to tell you, on a street corner, when I share the gospel, I do it the same way I do it in the pulpit, okay? I'm waving my arms, and I'm having a big time, and the thing is, they're all snickering and laughing, and it's not just my accent. Because afterwards, I sat and I talked to a guy. There was a guy in the crowd that was a Christian. And he came up to me and he said, man, thank you for sharing that gospel like that and preaching. Man, that was just really great. That was really encouraging to my soul. I said, why were they laughing? Because they know you believe that. They know you believe the gospel. They're laughing because they think it's a fairy tale. He said, but I don't think that gospel will go empty. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. We see something going on. We see that the message of this child, the life of this child will be opposed. You know, the message, the values, the life that you live that is in Christ and empowered by Christ, it's opposed by the world around us. God didn't call us to be attractive to the world. He called us to be set apart from it. He called us to stand out in a righteousness that comes from the Spirit of God and from the Word of God. And the world around us will stand opposed against that. And Simeon is pointing out that that's what it's going to be like. But that's normal. That's normal. We need to understand that it's normal for Christians to be looked at and scoffed at. It's normal for us not to fit into this world. It's normal. So when you live according to the Word of God and according to Christ, according to this child that came in, and ultimately was crucified. When you live your life in a way that is separate from the thinking and activities of the world around. 
let them walk. Because you know what? We're waiting. And we're doing so with patience. And we're doing so with faithfulness, sharing this gospel, even if they laugh at us. And making known the love and the care, the grace, and the magnificence of the God who we love and we believe and we serve. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that there's going to come a day for all of us, Lord, that we will depart in peace, either in our death or in your coming. Lord, we will depart in peace. And we will enter into your presence where there is great joy. And Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to embrace the truth of your word. And Father, that we would not give way to the ways and the thinking of the culture that surrounds us. But instead, God, that we would walk faithfully according to your word. And Father, we would find all of our hope in knowing you through Jesus Christ, that you would be our greatest joy, that nothing on this earth, Lord, can give us the joy and the satisfaction that you can give us. It only comes through you. So God, I pray, Lord, that as believers, we will trust your promise and give way to your embrace. And Father, that you, Father, would be glorified in the lives that we live for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.